Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Valentine's Day. Wasn't that nice exchanging cards? So I, I just came home. I've been away. Uh, th- Thursday night I gave a talk at a wonderful church in uh, Kingston. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday uh, was a silent retreat uh, in Armprior which is about an hour from Ottawa. And uh, um, although things around here sometimes seem a little zen, uh, my formal training's in Vipassana. And um, I'm a guiding teacher for a group called True North Insight. And uh, I don't don't do as much with them as I want to, but we do Vipassana retreats. Uh, and, and True North Insights a really interesting organization because uh, the goal is to do uh, is to offer uh, vipassana or insight meditation practice uh, in a formal way, but an accessible way bilingually. So um, retreats are offered in English and they're offered in French, and uh, it's a really wonderful organization if you don't if you don't know about it. And um, I've been associated with them for a little while, and this year I, I became a guiding teacher. So now um, there's a there's a group of us that, that sort of run the run the show. It's really lovely. Um, another great teacher with that organization is a guy named Pascal Oclair, who who teaches for Spirit Rock. Uh, um, he he did his training both at Spirit Rock and. Uh, the Insight Meditation Society. He's wonderful. Norman Feldman and Molly Swan are guiding teachers. Such a good group. Our, our meetings are great. Yeah. So yeah, so I just came back from there. and It's nice to be back in Toronto. There was snow in Armprior. Have you heard about this? <laughs> um, and according to my notes, this is the fifth talk I've given now on an essay written in the 13th century by a Zen master named Dogen. And the essay is called Mountains and Rivers. San Sui Kyo, in Japanese. And um, for those of you who are new, you can kind of jump in at any time. So don't be shy. Um, 
if you have questions, please ask them. Um, we talked in the first couple of weeks about Dogen's biography. Then we sort of jumped into the text. And tonight, instead of reading line by line, I just want to pick up a couple of ideas and, and, and just uh, talk about them and how they relate to uh, meditation practice and, of course, how they relate to your daily life and then how your daily life relates to meditation practice. Daily life relates um, to daily life. Um, so, first of all, I've always felt that Dogen's essay, Mountains and Rivers, is like a love letter to meditators. So there's a way that he writes where it feels like he's trying to express something so intimate, but he can't ever get the right language pattern. And I mentioned this, I think, last week, that a lot of people say, why on earth does Dogen write the way that he writes? If he wants to say something about mountains and rivers, why don't he just say the thing already? Um, but what I was saying, I think, last week was, when you ask that question, there's an assumption that you can actually speak in a not misleading way about the things most intimate to you. And this is always the paradox of communicating as a human being. That sometimes we really trick ourselves into thinking that you can actually express what's closest to you. And if you go too far on the other end, you just say, well, you can't. And then you don't see the value of language. And then you become one of these meditators who thinks thinking's bad. And language is, you know, just a, a train wreck. Um, actually, you need to be able to hold both. Another theme we've explored with Dogen um, is really that everything exists only for the time being. And this is how he thinks about mountains. That mountains uh, stand for ongoingness. And ongoingness is being. Being is ongoingness. And uh, it's the only way that one can live. So that mountains are ongoingness and your life is ongoingness, which means it really has no beginning. That's an idea. And really, it has no end. Because as soon as you predict the end of your life, then you're not in your life anymore. And I tie this a little bit loosely last week to what happens when you're with someone when they die. <coughs> when you experience how life is just like a flash, or lightning, or a bubble, or the way life is like a snowflake. Lands on your eyelash, then it hits your cheek, then it dehydrates or drains down to the lake. And when you're with someone when they die, it's the strangest feeling because they're alive and then they're not alive. And it sort of matters and it sort of doesn't matter. So your life changes because they're not there but then also, at the same time, in some weird way, um, the experience of them being alive and going to not alive also 
isn't so different in some some fundamental way that's impossible to describe. But maybe you know the feeling that I'm talking about. You're with someone, and then in the moment they die, there, there's the feeling of them dying, and also the experience doesn't actually change that much. And then it's hard to know what the difference is. Alive, dead. And I think I gave the example last week of the koan. Did I tell the story of knocking on the casket? I think I did. Uh, I reused it again in Armprior. Um, of the, so I can't remember. It was much better in our prior. Um, of of the, the teacher knocking on the casket. Oh. It's like, we're in a casket right now. The teacher's knocking on the door. Yeah. So knocking on the casket and then saying, uh, dead or alive? And the answer is, dead or alive? Uh, I can't say. I can't say, dead or alive. It's experience between the difference between dead and alive. So anyways, we won't go into all that, but I'm just, you know, summing up. Um, so now I want to, I wanna, and you can follow along, but I want to go into the section on green mountains and eastern mountains and also on water. Um, so Dogen says, green mountains thoroughly practice walking and eastern mountains thoroughly practice traveling on water. Accordingly, these activities are a mountain's practice. So, basically he's saying that everything in the world is practice and the world is not just laying there like a book on a table. That the world actually is practicing. And this weekend, being on the river... Uh, watching people bring their ice fishing huts uh, by snowmobile back to shore because the river is starting to melt, um, the snow rather is starting to melt, there's really this sense that um, the river is this kind of ongoingness, you know, frozen, moving, flowing, um, but also that the river is practicing. And so when you're in the meditation hall and you're sitting there and you're perfectly still and the river is flowing out uh, not far from the windows of the hall, there's the sense that you're perfectly still and the river is really actively practicing. And this was some homework I asked people to do during walking meditation when they went outside, was really see trees and rivers as practicing. As opposed to this silly idea we have that we're sentient beings and the world out there is insentient. And sentient means having a sense organ. But is that really true? I don't know if I can always think that way. Just like I can't just go, oh, that's a mountain, because then I miss the mountain. So what if we imagine that rivers are sentient beings? I think this would be a good thing, ecologically, for us to really think about rivers as sentient beings. And then to also see that we also are rivers. And so the thing about us that makes us sentient and that nourishes our sentience also is insentient. And most of what we call sentient, I'm a sentient being, is actually insentient. Or maybe it's so insentient that it's sentient. And maybe Dogen's saying that mountains are insentient and they're sentient beings at the same time. 
So he's asking us just to, to kind of like expand. And one way he says this is a stone woman gives birth at night. And, and what this means is, a, so at night is a, a kind of famous Buddhist saying, at night is like emptiness, where everything's equal. And a stone woman giving birth at night is like the mountain with its rivers flowing through it, constantly giving birth. And if you ever travel in mountains, you know mountains are constantly giving birth to new life. They're crumbling. Just like in every moment, you're crumbling and you're also giving birth. And then Dogen says something like, uh, a little later in the chapter, you may have read this already, he says something like, and, and when you have a child, then you're a mother. Just like right now, being is this ongoingness, and you're flashing in and out, moment to moment. So, then Dogen says, green mountains thoroughly practice walking, and eastern mountains thoroughly practice traveling on water. So, do you remember the green mountains? He's talked about these a lot, right? So he's introducing something new. There's these green mountains, sometimes they're blue, um, and, and they're practicing walking. So green mountains are walking, which really means that green mountains are walking. And hopefully you're doing this in your life. You're seeing where there are things that are solid, that you think are permanent, but really they're walking. They're changing. Every structure, your career, your bones, your teeth. I had this a few weeks ago. I had to get my teeth worked on think your teeth, these solid things, and the dentist looks at your teeth, doesn't see them as solid things. Um, and then there's these eastern mountains, and Dogen says eastern mountains are practice hyphen realization. Eastern mountains are practice realization. So what so that's a metaphor for wisdom. It means that practice is realization, and realization is practice. So this is that inversion he does of enlightenment that I talked about on the first day, how you don't practice to get enlightened, you are enlightened, and that's why you practice. Imagine going onto your cushion every day, practicing because you have this life, because you appreciate so much that you have this life, that you actually want to realize your life. <coughs> Just like mountains are realizing themselves in and out of time. You want to realize your life. So you practice. As opposed to what Dogen says is just the biggest misconception in spiritual practice, which is practicing to get somewhere in order to mind. I'm doing this in order to get here. And I know, for me, I think I wasted so many years of practice on meditation retreats because I read so much about other people's spiritual experience. So when I meditated, I wanted to have so-and-so's experience, right? I wanted to wake up and look at the sun and have his experience or her experience. And that's why I try to be very careful when I talk about my own experiences meditation because I feel like as soon as I say it, some of you are going to, it's, it ought, just lodges in there. And then when you meditate, you want to have that experience. 
But you can only have your experience. You can't have somebody else's experience. So that's why everyone should stop reading autobiography of a yogi. Because that's actually ruined more people's spiritual practice than anything. Because then people start doing all these weird kriyas because they're trying to get, you know, tingling and whatever. And then, and then really their practice isn't their own practice. And the practice has to be your own practice. Your own enlightenment. And enlightenment is always mediated by the vocabulary of the culture. I don't buy an unmediated experience that has nothing to do with patterns of perception. Your perception is always mediated by language. And there are moments without it, which is what we're really interested in. But then it gets fused back to language. And that's okay. That's okay. More on that later. So Eastern mountains are practice realization. And then he says, and Eastern mountains aren't walking. Eastern mountains are, does anybody know? Floating on water. I love this. So you've got the green mountains, let's say, over here. They're all walking. Okay, you have to really like get into this. Because remember what he said. If you can't see eastern mountains, if you can't see green mountains walking, then like you just have shallow understanding. And you have to read this and go, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then all the other mountains, which are just practice they're, and realization at the same time, they're floating on water. So now he's bringing the water to the mountains. In other words, your wisdom and your realization is not solid. It's floating on water. It's flowing. So you may have realization, and then tomorrow, that realization meets a different context, and it has to be reworked all over again. Like these absurd stories of yogis who have such deep enlightenment that's fixed, that they go to another culture and they're just as enlightened? Well, it's not true. You don't treat women in northern India the same way you treat them in Toronto. So your enlightenment is not free of karma. And if you hear anybody who says that their enlightenment is so deep that they have no karma, you should run away very, very quickly before you end up in a newspaper article about something really stupid that the teacher did usually around money or sex. More on that later. <laughs> Accordingly, Dogen says, these activities are a mountain's practice. Keeping its own form without changing body and mind, a mountain always practices in every place. This is your life he's talking about. That your wisdom always practices in your form in every place. As opposed to these ideas where wisdom is like separate from form or separate from experience, that you can get a wisdom so deep it doesn't matter what situation, situation you're in. It's like when they have baseball players on David Letterman and they ask them about politics. <laughs> or they have politicians on CNN and they ask them about baseball. Or they have celebrities and they ask them about anything. 
Like, like the new, the new, you know, go-to person is Sean Penn, you know, and he should know about anything, right? So I think he knows about Haiti, and he probably knows a bit about Madonna, you know, and film. Anyways, this is being recorded, so I'll be careful. <laughs> So do you get the sense that there's ma- all mountains are walking, everything that's solid is walking, but also wisdom, practice realization. Your practice, your realization, it's also on water. It's flowing. And it's just like, he says, Mount Meru or Mount Sumeru, other translation. Does anybody here know about Mount Meru? Because you should know. So d- remember, Dogen started practicing when he was like 10, and became ordained when he was 13 because his parents died. And all he wanted to do was study impermanence to to make sense of his life. And so he was steeped in Buddhist literature. So he makes these references to things. And if you don't know what they are, sometimes you don't get what he's saying. But he, he says that even Mount Meru is like this, is practice realization floating on water. So Mount Meru is a famous story from early Buddhist philosophy, uh, mythology rather, where there's a mountain, and the reason why it's holy is that it's upside down. Okay, And you see this in tantric art, Mount Meru, which is like a triangle upside down. And um, the story about Mount Meru is that one day the gods and goddesses and demons wanted to find the sweetest nectar of compassion. Have you ever wanted to do this? It's like, I came to center of gravity because I want to find the sweetest nectar of compassion. All I got was a Valentine's card. <laughs> no, I didn't even get one. I was like, one of, uh, and it's all, my whole life is like this, you know? Here I am again on the outside. You know? Maybe I should move to Parkdale. Um, so the gods and goddesses and demons they want to find the sweetest nectar of compassion so what they decide to do is to churn the ocean and so the way they do this and we did this practice tonight in kermasana they take a kerma sounds like kermit but you have to wrong century they take a kerma which is a tortoise and they turn it on its back so it's upside down with its navel facing the sky, and then they take Mount Meru, which is this inverted mountain, and they put the tip in the navel of the tortoise. Can you don't forget, green mountains are walking, the other ones are floating. <laughs> and, you know. So there's this tortoise in the middle of the ocean with the heaviest mountain on earth balanced in the navel of the tortoise. And then the gods and goddesses take the the tail of a serpent, and the demons take a fire-breathing head. And they do this dance where they spin the serpent around the mountain so that they can churn the ocean by turning the mountain. Has anyone here ever churned butter? No. Churned silken tofu? (laughs) No. 
Um, I don't know. Done a yoga posture? That's churning. So they churn the ocean by spinning the mountain on the navel of the tortoise. And then the ocean, so all these tidal pools start and then tsunamis. And then they start to distill the ocean and they're all expecting out of the center of Mount Meru, the central axis, sweet nectar, which goes by two names, Amrit, which means not death, and Karuna, which means compassion. Because it said compassion is not death. Right? Compassion is the thing that doesn't die even though it feels like it sometimes. And whenever you hear of Mount Meru in Indian mythology, it's always a metaphor for your body. So it said when you start practicing, you start practicing because you desire compassion, you desire the nectar, right? We all want the nectar. Even if we interpret it as weight loss, I want to lose five pounds, is really code language for I want to cultivate compassion and serve all sentient beings. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, so it just can be a bit misguided sometimes. So then, um, this instead of sweet nectar coming out of the central axis of the mountain, a horrible stench comes out of the center of the mountain and fills the entire universe and all other universes that one can think of. And ants are like covering their nose. Birds are taking their wings, covering their face. Nobody can handle it. It smells so bad. And uh, one reading of this part of the story is that this is exactly what happens when you start spiritual practice. That the practice starts to churn you and you're expecting the nectar, but what actually comes out of the central axis, this is Shumna Nadi, because it's the body, is actually toxicity. Has anyone ever felt this way? And everyone around you is like, oh, <laughs> right? you smell so bad. But also, really, the toxins are just your habits. And this is usually the place in practice where you quit. You said, hey, I can't, I've been coming here, I've been, you know, doing downward dog, upward dog, twisting, you know. And then all that's coming out are my habits. But I came here to see the compassion. Because you haven't yet realized that the compassion comes out of the woundedness. You just see them at first as separate. There's the woundedness, and then there's the compassion. There's the love. And I just want the love, but not the woundedness. Because you see them as separate. You don't see them as interdependent. So usually this is where people quit. So the universe was about to quit because everything smelled so bad. So they called on Shiva. And Shiva, remember we were talking about Shambhavi Mudra last Monday, two Mondays ago? Yeah, Sham is just a nickname for Shiva. And so Shiva represents pure awareness. So awareness that doesn't discriminate. And Shiva has a really long tongue. Like Alice Cooper. <laughs> Alice Cooper and Shiva did some practice. It went wrong, though. He didn't get the ethics part. <laughs> I wonder if he knows Sean Penn. 
Simmons, Gene Simmons? Yeah, he's, uh, Is he the one with the tongue? Yes. Oh. I thought it was Alice Cooper. <laughs> Gene Simmons, that's right. Yeah. Wonder if he knows Alice Cooper. Probably. <laughs> Probably. It's the same guy, actually. <laughs> He just changes his makeup. <laughs> Do they have a reality TV show yet? Gene does. Gene does. Okay. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Shiva takes his tongue and he inserts it down the center of the mountain, the central axis of the mountain, and then with suction, sucks up all of the toxins out of the mountain. It said apparently he leaves some toxins. It's another uh, folktale that he leaves some toxins, which is where all the serpents get their cockroaches. Anyways, so he sucks them out. He sucks the toxins out, and then he holds them in the back of his throat, and he doesn't swallow them, and he doesn't spit them out. So swallowing it, swallowing it would be attachment, and spitting out would be aversion. So when habits arise. You don't swallow them, which would be identifying with them, and you don't spit them out. It's like, I don't want to have anything to do with them. This is yours. Um, and then the nectar flows. But it flows not out of the mountain, but out of Shiva's palate. And that's why Shiva is often called the blue-throated one. Actually, if you see uh, paintings of Shiva, he has a blue throat for this reason. Or he has snakes wrapped around his throat that are blue. So what this represents is that there's this floating mountain, which is your body, which is flowing. And as you begin to practice, as you begin to flow with your life and really enter your life, what you think is going to arise, which you want to be pure love, actually arises only through the holding of the nectar, of not discriminating. Right? So the real nectar is not the wound or the compassion, really. The real nectar is letting go. Mm-hmm. So this is the story of Mount Meru. There's many tangents to it that you can keep following. Um, but Dogen's saying even Mount Meru, this holy mountain with pure nectar, it's also flowing. So don't get this idea that then you can release your palate, your throat will turn blue, and you'll have pure compassion, and it'll be set. He's saying, but that's also flowing too. So it's set, and then tomorrow's a new day. And isn't this a frustrating thing about practice? You get to these levels, and we all know this, where things are pretty good, and your reactivity has lessened, and your life is going a lot better than you ever thought it could. And then something else shows up. And how could you have ever known? And then our work is to find what's redeeming in those experiences. And then now Dogen goes deeper and says something about water. Um, Maybe I'll just read that, that part if I can find it. Oh, by the way, this next part is my favorite part of Dogen, where he says, water 
This is on page 158. Water is neither strong nor weak, neither wet nor dry, neither moving nor still, neither cold nor hot. He goes on and on. Basically saying water is not what you think it is. Right? These are all the things we say about water. Cold, flowing, hot. Um, when water solidifies, it's harder than a diamond. Who can crack it? He's not saying water solidifies. He's saying when the flow of your life solidifies, who can crack it? You can't crack it. We all know this, right? You get really rigid about something, nobody can crack it because you're defensive. And then he says, when water melts, it's softer than milk. So beautiful. This is not merely studying the moment when humans see water. This is studying the moment when water sees water. And some of you know I quote this all the time. What he's saying here is that when you go to, when you look at water, you have this idea that there's a fixed me that's looking at water. But actually, you're water. You're made up of 70-something percent water. You're insentient. You're water. You see? So that when you go to the water, it's not really you meeting the water. It's water meeting water. And then Dogen says, and water recognizes water. That's a beautiful thing. Maybe this is the reason why we all need to go to the lake and to rivers and why we feel so good being close to water is because the water is recognizing water. He just pulls the human right out of it. And this is water recognizing water. And then he says, not all beings see mountains and water the same way. Some beings see water as a jeweled ornament, but they don't regard jeweled ornaments as water. So good. Huh? Then he says, um, some beings see water as a wondrous blossom, but they don't see the blossoms as water. Blossoms are water, especially cherry blossoms. This year, for cherry blossom season, I'm going to be in Kyoto. And cherry blossoms, they only last a short time. You know? and, and, and in Japan, uh, someone was telling me that in those weeks of cherry blossom season, actually, after the weather report, they actually have a map of Japan, and they show you where all the blossoms are changing throughout the country. So I thought it was so beautiful. Imagine if we did this with maple leaves in the fall or maple syrup where it's like you know they finish the weather report and you're totally depressed and then they tell you where the syrup is flowing you know? then he says hungry ghosts and remember what those are so here's another reference to mythology so hungry ghosts that's those par the part of us that's never satisfied that's always hungry that it's actually a metaphor for addiction and self-centeredness Hungry ghosts, when they see water, they only see a raging fire, pus, or blood. Could, could you picture that? You, you go down to the river. This is how you know if you're self-centered. 
is you go down to the lake and all you see is pus. Can you picture this? Imagine like going down to the Don River and you look down and it's just pus. Streaming river of pus. Isn't that a great image? I love that. Dragons and fish see water as a palace or pavilion. Some beings see water as seven treasures or a wish-granting jewel. Some beings see water as a forest or a wall. Basically, he just keeps stretching it out and stretching it out. And why does he do that? Because he doesn't want you to get into a cliché where you go, oh, I get it, so wisdom is floating on water, so basically that means everything just should be like flowing like water, man. He doesn't want you to do that. So he just keeps stretching out, like water is also a wall. It's forest, it's jewels, it's blossoms. And if water is all those things, then those things are also water, right? He doesn't want you to be a subject seeing water, but he also doesn't want the things that are made of water to be water without seeing it that way. So if you think of water as a diamond, then diamonds are also water. You're just totally, totally going for, for some way of stretching language where it's, it, it kind of breaks apart the way you think of what, the, the way you think about what you're looking at. It's a little confusing. That's okay. Are there any questions, comments? I might, I might have to stop there, actually. Oh, I had a little, a, a little poem I was going to read about this. Comments? Questions? Confusion? Yes, Patty. Uh, I was thinking last week this, and then it just came up again when you said stretching the way you look at things. Last week you told a story when Joan Halifax and Oh, and Enkyo Roshi yeah. went to Tibet. Tibet. And they saw uh, a lake. A lake. And I thought oh, then, yeah. and I thought now about how the image of Three Mountains walking. So as soon as she yeah. said that, it was this deeper understanding of Tibet or yeah. you know, the, the shifting language. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, the, fir the first time Enkyo Roshi came to Toronto, I can't remember how many years ago that was now. Um, a few. She, I picked her up from the airport and we were driving down the 427 towards the Gardener. And you know there's a section of the 427 when you get close to the Gardener where you know, on the side of the road, there's just lots of tall buildings. Mm -hmm. So you can't really, you're just like in a corridor of, of buildings. So we were driving down, heading south, and she's looking out, and, and, and I'm just aware of how it's not the most scenic <laughs> route into Toronto, you know? And she just said, the sky is magnificent. Look at the clouds. And I thought... You can't see what's she looking at because you, all you see is buildings. And then I realized she was looking at the reflection of the clouds in the sky in the mirrored buildings. Cool. And she was saying, which is you know quite a Manhattan yes. thing to do. 
And she just thought this was so beautiful. The sky is so beautiful. Clouds are so beautiful. And it took me a while to realize, oh, she's looking at the reflection. And, um, and it's beautiful. You know? As opposed to the mind that comes in, oh, that's a reflection. You can't see the sky. That's how most of us do, right? Like, just, everything that's wrong. For her, it's so, so beautiful. Yeah. Grant, I didn't catch you wore the right shirt tonight. I didn't catch what it was that John talked about when she said, and I didn't hear it now. It was, um, well, you explain it. If we could do it together like before. <laughs> we could take this on the road. <laughs> We've been living together for 30 years. We just finish each other's. And, yeah, the dementia starting. I'm helping her out. <laughs> yeah. She dresses me in the morning. <laughs> so the two of them went to Tibet. <laughs> the two of them went to Tibet. Um, they actually went, to, to, they, they went on a pilgrimage walking. And when they got uh, to the lake, uh, after going around Mount Kailash, which is a famous lake known for being very, very still, and in it, and you've all seen these photographs of, you know, you look into the lake and you see the whole mountain range. Mm. And so Joan Halifax tells this funny story about how Ankyo arrives at the lake, you know, gets off the horse or whatever, looks into the lake and sees in the lake Manhattan. She sees the skyline. And this really impressed Joan. So that I think that's how it... Yeah, Green Mountains are walking. Yeah, Manhattan's walking right through. That's the story. Grant. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's very beautiful. And what, what was striking me with this Green Mountains walking in Eastern Mountains, traveling on water, yeah. is also a similar sort of thing that it's actually rooted in, in a personal experience of the vision that I was getting with these two things are uh, when you see the, the mountain that's covered in trees and the wind, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like the, the trees give this appearance that the, maybe the, it's like the skirts of a mountain moving uh-huh. or the mountain's actually walking. Yeah. And when you see a mountain across water, yeah. it's like it is traveling on water and it's floating. Uh-huh. It's, like, it's not the rational way to understand the mountain, uh-huh. but it, it's no less true to look uh-huh. at the mountain and see those, see those images as, yeah. as what is arising. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's like that with people too, right? Sometimes you look at a person and you see in them the reflection of their mother, their father, their education, right? Like anything we look at is like that. Anybody else? Comment, question? So, um, this is like a spiritual practice, but how is it different, or is it the same as Koyha practice? Oh, I don't think there would be any difference for Dogen. Yeah, Yeah, I, I, I... What was the question? This is spiritual practice. How is it different than poetic practice? Um, 
I'm just giving you my, my guess, but I think Dogen would say it's one and the same thing. Uh, and the reason is because Dogen felt that spiritual practice had to involve expression. It, wasn't a, it couldn't just end in a private experience. Somehow your practice had to be expressed. And I think for all of us, this is the hardest part of spiritual practice. Partly because we've read Autobiography of a Yogi, or whatever. You can put in whatever's there. And usually the practice has to do with their mystical experience. But what Dogen is saying, but that's not what's interesting. What's interesting is then what? It has, the experience has to travel on water. And one of the ways it travels on water is through language. And it's interesting because this is also coming out of the centuries where Buddhist practice or Zen practice in China and in Japan also became known as art practice. And that's why we have the Zen arts, whether it's arts that have to do with performance or calligraphy or pottery or all the things we think of as Zen arts, which, and you know, all those great poets from that time. You know, think about how many poets from Kyoto at that time were alive. Uh, Banke, so many people. And they were constantly trying to express their experience through language. So it was, it was a practice where they weren't abandoning language. They were trying to practice and stay connected still to, to linguistic form. And, and I feel sometimes, and, and you know, I don't know if I'm right, but I feel that artists in contemporary culture who work their art to a level where they're really struggling with language, like the language poets, um, are doing spiritual practice, whether they think of it that way or not. Uh, you know, we don't like to think of it like that because it's like, you know, they're not really practicing. You know. But actually, I think when you take any practice to, to that level where you're really seeing language, and by language, I'm talking about everything. Everything is language. Right? Um, then art practice is a valid spiritual practice at that level. Yeah. I think Dogen would say that. Push it a little bit further, and, and as I'm thinking about my question, my kind of consciousness coming now with an answer and then confusion. Uh, how about illusion? Illusion? Yeah. How about poetic, it? Poetic expression. Yeah. Quite illusory. Yeah, it's great. Um, What's not an illusion? Disillusion. Right? How, or how disillusion. <laughs> sometimes it's a mountain, sometimes it's a mountain. <laughs> It's illusion. So it's a, it's, what's not illusion? Everything's illusion. And it's not. Yeah. I mean, you know, a academics argue that one of the distinctions of, of Japanese poetry in that time, um, and also, you know, including poets like Basho, who so many of us are familiar with, is that when they talk about clouds or trees or water, they're not metaphors. And this is something in Basho's poetry that's really interesting. 
is that when Basho says a cloud floating in the sky, he means a cloud floating in the sky. And we always interpret like, oh, it's a thought in the background of pure awareness. You know. um, so that's also another way of flipping language around. That's maybe where the direct experience yeah. is like, yeah. objectifying. Yeah. I mean, just listen to his style and how he, how he teaches. Yeah. Can I add one more thing to this artist thing that's making me think? I think we talked about this a bit at the end of the Yoga Sutra, but... You know, I, I think this is something that really changed in the art world. You know, when after a while just too many artists died. It's still like this. What's his name just died? Uh, Mike Kelly? You know, I don't know if you know him. Yeah, just took his own life. You know, and it's like, I think there was a point where just so many artists sacrificed themselves and just burnt out because of this myth of like suffering and the art coming from suffering, this crucible of personal suffering. And it's interesting to note, and I'm not an art historian by any means, but it's interesting to note how when artists stop thinking about themselves that way, mm-hmm. right? When artists stop thinking of the suffering artist burning their life up for the art, the art changed, and instead the platform for art was not personal suffering, but language. Mm-hmm. You know, And in the 80s, we really saw the art world really changed where the basis of what people were starting to work with went from just like my personal suffering to really starting to struggle with language in an abstract way, in a particular way. And I think those things relate to each other because I think really to look deeply at your life, you have to look at the way language and story and narrative are in the background of how you see things. Anyways, that's my two cents about the art world. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I I think it's true. (laughs) You ever feel that way? Yes. And then that follow in our own lives, um, letting go of those stories and letting go of that. As in, yes and no. Yeah, and creating better ones. Better ones. You know, that's this, uh, that's, it's something we really see uh, like uh, the new phase of the Occupy movement is really this kind of what people call the double helix DNA. It's a new phase people are using. Double helix, they call it double helix activist DNA. Has anyone heard this term? No. See it on the internet a lot right now. Which is basically this double helix where on the one hand you have resistance Right, like resisting, which also is the letting go, right? The letting go of what's not fixed and not cooperating with it anymore, which is really the first phase of the Occupy movement. And then this other piece of the puzzle, which is and some new ideas that can emerge out of that. Mm-hmm. And both pieces have to be happening at the same time. They have to be happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to see that, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, this is something in our practice too, like 
it's not just letting go of story. And I think all of us, you know, we like to say this about spiritual. It's just like letting go, man. Letting go of story. Well, yes, it's letting go of story. And it's making space to restore your life. Because you can't live without language. You can't live without narrative. So how do you see a narrative that's been stuck and really see that and then make space so that a new one can emerge? And then the new one that emerges, eventually you'll get fixed on that and you're going to have to let go of that too because it's flowing. It's water. Yes, Adele. Well, on that point, I think there's such a sense in this piece that to actualize form is our condition. Yeah. Yeah. You need to be able to talk about the mountains as high and broad uh-huh. in order to talk about um, their impermanence or their yeah. quality. And mountains only can practice high and broad and so on, like you can only practice in your in your form. You can't do it outside your form. Try having someone else's mystical experience. <laughs> okay, today I'm going to have the Aurobindo. And people do this all the time, and you hear them talk, and it's like it's not their they're not it's not their language. It's not their life. It's somebody else's language. I think it's a little bit like a teenager grows up and leaves home and then they come back and come back to themselves as they grow Mm -hmm. and then they leave again with various sort of growth and ideas and the mountains flowing, it's mm-hmm. us basically constantly leaving and coming mm-hmm. back and yeah. leaving and coming back. Yeah. And that journey yeah. is a process that's yeah. part of becoming mm-hmm. aware. Mm-hmm. Well, rivers are like that and lakes are like that too, right? Yeah. They have currents yeah. and then they have subcurrents and sub, sub, subcurrents. So you say, like, which way is the river flowing? And does anyone hear fish? Probably not. Or tofu or whatever? <laughs> so it's like when you, you fish. Yeah. I don't know what you use as bait for tofu. So I'm sure Monsanto has something. Okay, so you take the Monsanto bait, you put it on the hook. What's Monsanto? It's no big deal. <laughs> They're about to go out of business. But you, 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 uh, you cast off the bait, and then it drops into the water. And if it doesn't have a weight, it'll just go anywhere, right? Where there, so you can, and and then sometimes if it goes a little deeper, you watch the whole thing come back. So it looks like the current's going one way, and if you have a weight that's not that heavy. Your, your bait starts coming back towards you. And then if it's a little heavier, it go, and there's an amazing thing to watch in rivers. Now, the river doesn't flow the way you think it, you think it flows. That's where Roundup comes in. And that's where Roundup comes in. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, we should probably finish. Although I never got to the Jane Hirschfield poem, which was the best part. In two weeks. I'll read Jane. 
Next week is the Tess Gerard film. And then the week after, we'll keep going with mountains and rivers. Um, we didn't have time to chant tonight. You, you know, we didn't have to, Tonight is when we do the chant for the people who have died or who've ill. But, but, but I think we, we have to acknowledge Whitney Houston. It's so, it's so bad to have another celebrity. She's not 50, you know? And like so many young people who've looked up to her, I mean, that Whitney Houston was the first music video I ever saw. <laughs> was Whitney Houston pushing plastic, you know? <laughs> And, and it's really terrible. And we've come to just think that this is just like we're just used to it. Mm. You know, Amy Winehouse, you know, like we get. And, and I think because of the way media is, we forget like an important cultural figure died and another one and another woman and like over and over. And she was a mother. And it's really, really bad. And, 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 and we, we, our consuming of media contributes to it. Mm-hmm. So stop buying those magazines with paparazzi photos. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have to stop. We, we, we have to, we're part of it, you know. So it's really, it's really, really bad that she died. Yeah. When did she die? I don't know. Marie. This weekend? Yeah. I was talking with some friends. She had been um, seen erratic for most of the day, and yeah. even by the hotel staff. Yeah. And how people, um, our culture, we don't really respond to that. Like, yeah. We wouldn't think of it being an emergency. Yeah. We just go, oh. Yeah. So it's, it's sad when people are kind of maybe going off the deep end and we don't. And we don't see it. Don't see it. Yeah. So, so maybe, well, next week we'll be with Tess, but the week after, maybe when we chant, we'll, we'll include her name in the, in the chant. So. Um, uh, but yeah, Christopher Hitchens, Vaclav Havel, Jack Layton, Amy, I mean, there's so many cultural figures. You know? So uh, anyways, to be continued. So let, let's finish just with our regular chant.